everybody get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but foodie married beast anyway. And together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. It's a beautiful day outside, but in all honesty, Nikki and I were a little troubled because with the turmoil related to the murder of George Floyd and everybody's righteous anger and the pandemic and all of that, it's sometimes hard to put together a show about restaurants and food and wine, but the reality is that the pandemic has has brutally injured the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry across the board, and we have guests uh, that'll be talking about that and about the, the impact of the pandemic in terms of hunger across the country. So I guess it is, you know, we're in tune with the uh, the, the mood that's going on out there in the world. The Nick, show must go on. The show must go on. So why don't you uh, talk about who's going to be on the show today, and then I'll do a quick run through of things that, uh, resources that people can uh, find. All right. Well, about a year ago, Sean Townsend stepped into a cool new role as D.C.'s director of the Mayor's Office of Nightlife and Culture. And he was charged with being kind of the central point of contact between the government and the nightlife industry and district residents. And of course, that job has taken a different turn now with the pandemic because nightlife and, and all of that is is in neutral. So uh, the, the city is about to reopen, thank goodness. And Sean is with us to talk about kind of what was, what is, and what will be with regard to the uh, city's nightlife and entertainment scene. Uh, we've also got Juan Coronado with us. He's the creative director and partner and cocktail maven at the Colada Shop. They're a Ramy nominee for Cocktail Program of the Year. And if you folks go to at Nikki Nellis on Twitter or Instagram right now, you can get a cocktail recipe. And then when Juan joins us, you can make his Cuban martini along <laughs> with Juan, and we'll all get lit up. Uh, Debbie Shore returns to the show again. She's the co-founder and CEO of Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry. She's going to talk about the enormous challenges of addressing uh, uh, particularly childhood hunger uh, during the pandemic when food resources are stretched even further and the shortages put low-income families everywhere at greater risk. Um, restaurants were a top contributor to rising employment in April and March, and uh, and uh, had restaurant employees across the country, millions of them, have been affected by the, the shutdown due to the pandemic. Uh, we're going to be joined by Camilla Marcus. She's a chef and owner of New York's Westbourne uh, Restaurant, and she's also a prominent member, member I'm sorry, of the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition, and they're trying to basically redress and ameliorate the situation of uh, restaurant employees around the country and save restaurants, really, because that's a challenge as they try to reopen. And closer to home, Neighborhood Restaurant Group is going to forge ahead with plans to reopen, uh, to open the Roost on Capitol Hill. Uh, their spirits manager and mixologist extraordinaire, Nick Farrell, is joining us again. And uh, he's kind of running ahead of that opening by selling pre-batch cocktails to go, which is something you couldn't do before COVID. So... Uh, interesting show. And let's go right to Sean. And, and Actually, before we go to Sean, I just want to remind people that they can go to the thelistareyouwanted.com. Um, thelistareyouwanted.com, the online e-zine, is featuring everything going on in the D.C. metro area. The calendar is wide open, featuring every demo, every virtual class, every place that you can order or take out from. Go to the buzz column. You will find a list of 
patio openings, which is because restaurants are now allowed to open. We'll be talking to Sean about that, but also restaurants that are doing delivery and takeout every day, a new one gets on that list and a couple unfortunately fall off that list. There is also incredible community outreach out there and you can get involved. Check out all the columns. It's now time to really be a part of what's happening in this community. You can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Twitter and Instagram. And Sean, we want to get into you. Well, Sean, when, when I heard about your new position, uh, uh, I thought, man, this guy, he's going to be traveling around, living the life in limos and, you know, the highlight. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know that that's the reality of your job at all. But uh, we want to hear about kind of the, the 411 on the position, but also uh, you've had to pivot in the time of COVID. You know, um, I think a lot of folks, uh, first, let me say thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um you know, it's always good to uh, connect with folks. And I think now the new norm is um, connecting virtually. So, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of folks had the same impression of the job when when the, now, when the vacancy was announced. Um, but I read the fine print a little more closely um, and realized that it was going to be a lot of long nights, um, a lot of, um, you know, sitting in meetings that probably wouldn't be too pleasant. Um, and, and really just trying to get to the core of how um, we can not only preserve uh, the nightlife that we have in D.C., but also uh, figure out how to make it better. Um, so so you, you know, joined, you know, when this position was opened, it was really put together by the mayor's office because nightlife was booming in D.C. and the restaurant industry and hospitality industry in general, more hotels, more bars, more restaurants. I mean, Kathy Hollinger, we love yep. her on the show all the time. I mean, she's the head of the Restaurant Association Metropolitan Washington. She and her team do incredible work. But there yep. needed to be somebody else who was yep. sort of ushering what was happening out there. And now it's like a, it's a total 180, right? And you're exactly right. So the idea came from Councilmember Todd um, in Ward 4, who whose office began to get inundated with calls about Upshur Street and, you know, the how to mitigate uh, issues that came up between residents and, and nightlife businesses. So um, bill was introduced, mayor signed it in December uh, 2018 is when I started. Um, and you're right. I actually, uh, I'm going to send this link to Kathy because I call, she called me this morning and I owe her a call. Uh, so I'm going to call her back, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell her what I was doing that prevented me from calling her back. But you're right. It it has been um, uh, February. We uh, released the first economic impact study of nightlife in D.C. Um, it showed all of these amazing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's seven point one billion dollars being spent that night by tourists. There's five hundred and sixty million dollars uh, annually that the city, um, you know, is generating in, in terms of tax revenue from nightlife businesses. Sixty five thousand people employed. Uh, 2,500 jobs. So, you know, it was a lot of, uh, it was a, it was a highlight of the office and we finally felt like we were, um, you know, gaining traction and we had this, this nice fancy, um, you know, blueprint to say, Hey, this is why we're so important. Um, Let's work on how we can make it better. And then March happened. Um, And we just literally went from, um, you know, from 100 to zero. uh, And now, we've sort of transitioned into a phase where um, everything is relief based, uh, just really trying to get creative and innovative about how, about our approach in terms of relief. 
So whether that's, um, you know, looking at what other jurisdictions are doing as it relates to legislation, um, looking at uh, different models of business, looking at agencies and figuring out what uh, policies and, and processes can be streamlined uh, is another sense, is another form of relief. Uh, and just yesterday, um, you know, Mayor Bowser announced uh, that we were moving into phase one uh, of our reopening um, um, period. And as a result of that, uh, restaurants, uh, food establishments rather, are able to operate in outdoors. Um, so we wanted to be able to provide some relief. So, you know, we now have this link up, uh, coronavirus.dc.gov forward slash phase one. You can apply to operate out, outdoors um, on a temporary basis uh, as, a, as a form of relief. And hopefully, as our curve continues to flatten, um, the contact tracing uh, program begins to build up. We will um, hopefully transition into phase two to allow uh, indoor dining to occur once again. Uh, and also providing some additional relief to our, to our restaurants. Let me ask you a couple questions. For, let's talk restaurant side first, yep. right? So yep. if you're in the industry and you have, already have outdoor dining, do you need to apply to open in phase one or can you just open and follow the guidelines? So great question. If you already have a sidewalk cafe permit mm -hmm. uh, issued by DDOT and you have a uh, sidewalk cafe endorsement, uh, issued by Abra, you do not have to register for anything. You can operate uh, outdoors as is. However, if you have a sidewalk cafe and you have three tables and four chairs a table, right? So that's 12 seats. You don't have that much space uh, where it makes economical sense for you to open up. So there might be potential uh, opportunity for you to expand to four more tables or, or eight more tables. Um, if that's an option for you, uh, I suggest, you know, you apply to, uh, to have expanded outdoor space. Um, that's what the portal is for. Um, you know, and also if you do not have a sidewalk cafe at all, um, and you'd like to propose a drawing or sketch of how you would like to expand outdoors, uh, DDOT's all ears. Um, I can assure you that I've been pushing DDOT to be, um, you know, very fast in terms of the turnaround time for these processes. Uh, you know, the mayor has tasked all of us with, um, you know, thinking outside the box mm -hmm. and figuring out how we can really provide relief. And, you know, I think this is one of the ways that we can do it. Well, let me ask a question, Sean, about money, because the box that a lot of restaurateurs have to think out of is, you know, they're, you know, they're down to their last nickel. Uh, we heard, I think, last week that most independent restaurants will never, ever in their lives have more than $30,000 in the bank. And if they've been trying to pay some employees and, and doing takeout and all that, but they're really not set to open, uh, is there any fund for them? Is there more PPP money for them? Is there anything through the city that they can utilize? Because otherwise a lot of them are just gonna go away. Uh, and you're right. I, 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 unfortunately, the sad part of it is, you know, and, and Kathy and I have this conversation all the time, you know, the percentage of restaurants that will not return uh, continues to increase. Um, but, you know, I know I, I can at least speak for the DC government side. And I know that uh, our deputy mayor of planning and economic development um, uh, and his team had issued a, a, a micro grant for small businesses. Uh, we were able to locate, I think it was uh, ended up being about $20 million. 
um, where we, would, we were able to issue funding to uh, all different types of small businesses. That included a number of restaurants who applied uh, for that funding. Um, in terms of PPP, you know, we were shorted $700 million by Congress because they did not identify D.C. as a state. Uh, we were identified as a territory and we only got uh, $400 million. So we we uh, we are owed seven hundred million. From what that I understand, so <laughs> frustrating. That is so. That makes me so angry. Well, maybe you can get it from the uh, the inaugural committee that's still <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that, we know you have to go, and and we really appreciate your time this morning. And we, we, I yep. really want you to come back. Like I want you yeah. on as much as possible to talk, to keep us posted. Can you just give as your sort of last line here? advice to the public like i know you're representing nightlife yep. and restaurants I and mean, we didn't even get into hotels so what is your advice to the public so that we go from phase one to phase two and not yeah. go backwards yeah uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna reiterate what the mayor and everyone else has been saying um you know wear your mask uh continue to 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 practice uh the social distance um we are in phase one uh for a reason and I think it's been the, um, the courage and the patience of not only residents, but uh, restaurateurs in the city. And now that we um, have opened the door a little bit and we can kind of see the light, let's continue to, to you know, follow the rules and keep everybody healthy. We have a, a huge vulnerable population here. Um, you know, there's a population with folks who have pre-existing conditions. And um, we need to keep them in mind as we're, we're starting to move around a little bit more. Excellent. Sean, just give everybody the best way to find out everything again. Give us the website. Yep. So uh, a couple things. There's coronavirus.dc.gov, um, phase, uh, phase forward slash phase one for info about, um, you know, reopening. Uh, nightlife at dc.gov is a way to get in touch with our office. Uh, so, and we're also on social media, DCMONC on all social media platforms. Well, I used to be jealous of you for your new job. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, thank you for your time. We know how busy you are. Be safe. And we hope thank to you. talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Look forward to coming back. This is David and Nikki Nella, Studio and the Beast. When we come back, we're going to have a Cuban martini and I need it. All right, we are back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and we're going to have some fun now. Juan Coronado is on with us. He is the creative, direct, creative director, sorry, and partner at the Colada Shop, the Ramy nominee for Cocktail Program of the Year. And uh, Juan is going to prove the point by helping you and helping us make a Cuban martini. So, Juan, how are you? How are you guys? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. And we're so honored to be nominated for the Ramy's this year. So, thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So, I mean, we have a couple minutes here before we get into your fabulous cocktail. Tell us just a little bit about the Colada Shop and how you've sort of handled what's been going how, on. How because, you're weathering the storm. Because you guys have outdoor patios, you have rooftops. Like, what's your what's your plan there? Well, um, first of all, I have to say that um, this is a message for everybody in the industry. And um, guys, we are the masters of staying positive and you know, overcoming any situations and flipping from additives to storms to problems. So I want to send this message to everybody that is related to the hospitality service industry. Stay positive. Things will change. Unfortunately, we didn't have a net to cash up in this one, but we're going to come out of this stronger. So hang on. Now yeah. back to Collider Shop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> message from our resident optimist. <laughs> 
I got to inject that, you know, uh, sure. that's part of the Colada attitude. And mm-hmm. we're fun, we're positive, we're Latin, and we, we need to, we need, that's our Bible, basically. So that being said, Colada Shop is that basically uh, Oasis that DC was like actually needing for a long time, as you guys know, a place mm-hmm. to like have a laugh, to come in with a friend, have a good coffee, try an empanada, then oh, perhaps you have a mojito or a daiquiri, and it's all affordable and beautiful because what we wanted to do was give something, a product that possesses high quality, great enthusiasm, a cultural experience, and at the same time, it won't break your you know, your bank. And that's what Colada Shops like focus on, good quality source ingredients with a great cultural aspect and delicious way of making it. And as far as the cocktails there, as you guys know, we've been creating a beautiful collection of Cuban-inspired cocktails and some of those heritage Cuban cocktails that are very famous, such as the daiquiri, the mojito, and we even created like coffee-related ones, old-fashioned. And um, that's our drive when it comes to cocktails, to, to give people what they want, what they like, with a smile. So um, let me ask you a question, Juan. Is a Cuban martini something you guys invented, or is that a thing? I invented that, actually, yeah. <laughs> it's one of my moves. <laughs> so, all right. Well, and so what makes it Cuban? So basically, um, Cuban, it's a culture, the Cuban culture is surrounded by, you know, the experience of coffee. To have a Cuban coffee, call it a colada, a cortadito, it means you're going to get out of your element and surrender everything that happens in your life and sit down for five, ten minutes with your friends or families and enjoy that and hear them, listen to what's happening around the neighborhood and the family, etc. So basically, that experience of you giving up and being receptive, that's what makes it like a Cuban experience. When it comes to the Cuban martini, I try to bring some of those aspects. Of course, that is the coffee and the rum. So to make a Cuban martini, you will need a beautiful, rich body rum. In this case, I'm using Bacardi Ocho Años, the Reserva, mm-hmm. which it's delicious. I'm using a espresso. So we use our Colada blend, which is a Cuban-inspired blend. I'm using a little bit of... Um, coffee liqueur, vermouth, and the secret weapon in this cocktail is a pinch of salt. Salt and coffee is quite incredible. I know it sounds weird, but it's incredible. Salt will bring the flavors of it. It wakes everything up, right? Exactly, yeah. So all that combination of uh, flavors, you mix it with some great ice and shake it vigorously with some vanilla syrup to create a bonding agent between all the elements you get this beautiful, frothy, beautiful cocktail. As a matter of fact, guys, don't laugh at me, but this is my favorite afternoon cocktail. It's not even evening. I drink this in the afternoon. Oh. It's a pick-me-up, and it's fantastic. Wait a minute. Is it a pick-you-up or is it a knock-you-out? <laughs> no, pick-me-up. Pick-me-up. You must be a lot younger. Listen, congratulations on your Rammy nominee. We're very excited for you. And um, we wish you all good health and good success with what's going forward. Um, and we'll be in touch soon. And may I just say, yes. con Dios. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, I hope I can sit down with you um, and enjoy one of these Cuban martinis soon in the rooftop. Uh, again, we're very honored. It's been a lot of hard work, and I know everybody's taking uh, pause right now, but we're ready. We're ready to come back out. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Drink up, everybody. Thank you. Stay safe.
All right. So now we want to welcome back to Foodie and the Beast our friend Debbie Shore. Debbie, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. My daughter figured it out because it's on Zoom. I couldn't do it. Yeah, our our son figures stuff out for us all the time. I got her out of bed. She figured it out. Anyway. Debbie and her brother, uh, uh, her brother Billy, back in 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 the early 80s, saw the problem with, in general, family hunger, but particularly hunger for children. And, um, you know, they started an organization that has morphed. It's now, you've, you've gone national, am I correct? Yeah. yeah. Now we're, yeah. International. we're national. Yeah. Well, I think you're international. How about that, Debbie? We, well, we actually started because of, you know, an international crisis, but we were always domestic and, you know, stayed working in a few countries internationally. So we've always had a, a footprint there and we've always cared a lot about the, the global world. Right. And then down. a second organization, No Kid Hungry, sprung from that. And uh, in, in, in normal times, if there ever will be normal times again, there were probably 15 million children in this country that went to bed hungry every night. And now with the, uh, the pandemic, uh, Low-income family hunger is a real is a real issue. It's a it's a burgeoning issue. Yeah, and, and it's, um, well, you know, it's uh, my brother and I were talking about this. You know, when we started Share Our Strength, we were around in the numbers where we are now, right? So there's about one in, um, you know, seven kids that we got. You know, that no kid hungry. We were able to get to that number when we started. It was closer to 1.4. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, one in four million kids, which is where it is today. So. You know, 30 million Americans are um, unemployed, and so many of them are the low-wage workers, right? Mm-hmm. So they were already struggling. So we're we're back to a, a pretty scary number of kids that are that are going to be at risk of hunger. I, I think one of the big differences now is that you know even though we're kind of backtracked uh, to one in four, which is a which is a bad number, we have gained there's so much awareness. We put so many um, solutions in place to feed kids. You know, most of our work had to do with, you know, helping kids get meals at school. Now right. that schools are closed, right. our grants now, they're going to school districts, right? So we've done about $15 million in emergency grants um, to hundreds and hundreds of schools across the United States and community feeding sites. So the systems are in place. That's kind of the good news. The awareness, the corporate, you know, uh, uh, support, and certainly the hospitality restaurant support that we built over the years, of course, now is struggling on their own. But, but we have so much, I think, we've gained that I'm hoping that with all of that, we'll be able to, you know, continue to feed millions of kids. We're well, feeding so close to about that, 9 million a day with our what partners. What does that look like? Like, so, you know, all the schools closed almost nationally overnight. Yeah. And you had all these programs. You've got, you know, you've got kids breakfast and you've got kids lunch. You've got some kids other food. So how did you... How were you able to turn on a dime? Yeah. What does it look like now? Because right. now we're going into summer. So yeah. a whole other animal. So it's, it's a challenge. You know, we, we have fortunately built all these relationships with schools. So, it, you know, we had that system in place. I mean, that was a pretty important piece for us. If we were starting 20 years ago, I think we, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to feed this many kids a day. But we had a lot of those systems in place. And we, you know, we have relationships with superintendents and teachers and, and school districts. So we, um, we're funded about 650 school dis- schools and feeding sites since this pandemic started. Wow. So, you know, that's a big part of our, that's a big part of our strategy is to make grants, but we're also supporting a lot of important policies through advocacy. Debbie, how is the word going out to the families? Because it's one thing to have 
Yeah. You know, the school's lined up and ready to go, but you've got all these, you know, everybody's dispersed. Right. No, great question. So our website, nokinhungry.org, you can find a map that you just, you know, people plug in where they live and they can see where a feeding site is. We also have a hotline and both are available on our, on our website. So we made sure that as we were making these grants, we were also building out a map finder and a a hotline for families. Well, so when you're giving out these grants to these school districts, are they preparing hot meals? Are they preparing grocery bags? Like what, what are your qualifications or what do you expect for them to be doing as a way of- Yeah, you know, it's it's similar to what the kind of, it depends where it is. If it's a school, it's similar to the school meals they were preparing before, okay. right, for kids. But there, as you know, there's a lot of restaurants now that are helping to feed the community. So they're preparing like different kind of food and getting out to the community. Eric Winter Yang, as you know, here in DC with the Power of 10, who we support, um, you know, and many others have popped up around the country. So I think there's, I think there's a number of different, kinds of meals that people are getting. Food banks have set up community kitchens, uh, World Central Kitchens out there feeding folks with their volunteers and chefs. So it, it's, a, it's a variety. But I'd say the country has responded in a pretty impressive way to help families and kids get meals. But is that hard for you with all these, I mean, listen, we love what Eric's doing. We love what Jose's doing. Like yeah. there's so many people doing amazing things, but does that clog what you're trying to do, like, can you all work together? Is it? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it clogs at all. I think it actually, um, uh, you know, kind of co-benefits uh, both our, all of our organizations. So we're, you know, we're primarily a funder, right? And we also do a lot of advocacy work. But in the space of of making sure that local organizations are getting what they need, we're a funder. So we're funding. Eric Winter Yang's programs, and we're funding World Central Kitchen programs and DC Central Kitchen in Washington and Martha's Table. You know, so we're we're seen as in addition to an advocacy organization, a funder. So there really is no, you know, I wouldn't say that's competitive at all. No, but as an advocacy, like especially with what's going on on the Hill right now, yeah, like yeah. these articles that they want to take SNAP benefits away, and I, I mean, it just doesn't sound. It sounds like there's a huge disconnect. But what's going on down on Capitol Hill and the 40,000 people without jobs who are, you know, food insecure. So yeah. uh, 40 uh, million, I'm sorry. So how, how do you, where do you do that? Yeah, well, I, I'd say there's a couple, I think some pieces of really good news. Number one, one of our big focuses and the Hill has passed, Congress has passed a bill to help what um, they call uh, PBET, right? So it's uh, the pandemic. Uh, transfer of benefits. And those benefit, those electronic cards that families have, more money is going to get on those cards for them to be able to buy, you know, grocery groceries in the store, um, increase SNAP benefits, things like that. The, the, of course, that's the good news. The, the challenging news is only 15% of the families are getting it right now. There's just, you know, lots of different uh, bureaucratic clogs and, you know, in, in the wheel that prevent that from, from happening at the speed at which we would like. But we have been able to collectively get some of that, some of those monies uh, passed, and we're working on the state and federal level to make sure that families are receiving those benefits. So, hey Deb, um, wait one yeah. sec. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, let's continue. Okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, this is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. We're talking with Debbie Shore, No Kid Hungry. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Debbie Shore, who is the founder of Share Our Strength and uh, a co-founder along with her brother, Billy, and No Kid Hungry, which is dedicated to ending childhood hunger in the United States, a real challenge now. Debbie, you were talking about 
essentially the, the machinations of dealing with Capitol Hill and what's going on at Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill in terms of ongoing funding. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, millions of dollars have been appropriated and authorized, which is great. I think um, nobody really knows too much about what the future holds uh, in terms of people getting back to work. But, you know, I think, again, I think that the, the good news is that we have identified solutions for kids. And those solutions are being delivered in schools and nonprofit local organizations through feeding programs. You know, restaurants and chefs, as much as they're struggling, which, you know, I didn't get to hear your last guest, but I am in touch with chefs just like you are, Nikki, and I know what's happening in this industry is decimated. As much as that's happening, they're still reaching out to say, like, how can I help? So there's a, there's a great um, uh, bill that's on the Hill right now called the Community Meals Fund, and it was introduced by Congresswoman Velasquez in New York. And it's a bill that would give nonprofit local organizations money, you know, grants to hire restaurants to help feed their community. Okay. It, it, and we had like 450 chefs sign on to it in the last couple of weeks. It's a, well, it's sort of similar to what Jose is doing and what the Power of Ten is doing. It's exactly. Different. But this would be fe- this would be federal gr- money coming into nonprofits to hire. So they, you know, they're they're doing it on a pretty small scale. This would increase the scale significantly. So right. we're gonna we're hope you know we're working hard on that and chefs are signing on to it. We're hoping that gets passed. Um, right. and that's just one step. But it, it's it's gonna be a long haul. It's gonna I be know. a long haul for these well, families. Listen, we really appreciate you coming on this morning. We know how busy you are. Thank we'll you, be in touch. We'll have you back soon just to give us an update on what you guys are doing and how people can help. Can you give us the website? Yeah, of course. Uh, nokidhungry.org. And you can find the map finder and the a hotline to help find meals and thank you both for having me on um all these all these times to tell our story really appreciate it all right well we are now joined by a prominent restaurateur chef and advocate for indie restaurants uh who is fighting like crazy with with her coalition to save independent restaurants in the middle of the covid crisis uh camilla marcus is the chef and owner of new york's westbourne and she has uh i know she's dedicating her life to trying to save her industry and we welcome her. Hi, Camilla. How are you? Hi. Uh, Hi hanging in. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> what day is it? <laughs> so we've been talking, I mean, the, the whole theme, of course, uh, of the show really this morning has been about the restaurant industry's uh, battle to, to, to come back from COVID. DC is just starting to open up today and restaurants with patios, there's obviously a lot of rules to follow, are going to be able to open up. Uh, but there's there's a lot of misery out there. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier is that uh, a stat we heard was that most independent restaurants, even the most successful ones, would never have more than about $30,000 in the bank. And so with the COVID crisis and PPP, you know, sort of sporadically coming out, yes, a lot more in trouble. And that's really why your coalition exists. So tell us how it got started and what you're up to. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and hello. Good morning, everyone. Um it, it really launched, frankly, kind of days after the pandemic uh, led to the shutdown here in the States around March 18th. And what I think triggered it was, you know, we were shut down with sort of 48 hours notice all across the country in, in varying uh, measure and, and ways. But what was clear is that, you know, we were going to be hit the hardest. And, and I think the lead up to the shutdown um, really showed you know, I think a lot of people don't understand our industry, especially and most particularly independents. Um, you know, two thirds of restaurants across the country are independently owned, which I think is surprising to most people. And when the shutdown happened, you know, people had to furlough or lay off, you know, the vast majority of their teams. And, 
you know, come Monday or Tuesday after that shutdown, um, you know, the 16th and 17th of March, you know, we really realized that our industry and our people were hit so hard and without much recognition um, from all levels of government in those days. I mean, I remember being on the phone with lawmakers that Monday you know, and, and saying, you're about to have millions of people unemployed and potentially permanently so. And they said, well, we don't see it in the unemployment numbers. And I said, well, we crashed, the site. we crashed the site on Monday. We crashed the entire site and they started staggering claims. So you know, the disconnect was pretty blaring. Um, and so we came together really, I mean, almost instantaneously. And I think what was so incredible, but shocking again to so many was big, small DC, New York, you know, Texas, Colorado, doesn't matter what state, what city, what town, what kind of restaurant you are, how big, how you operate, who the owner is, we all came together and realized that we are so united and we do have the same interests and we are affected by this so similarly. And at that time, the only people who had been invited to Washington to be part of the relief talks were large chains, public companies, um, you know, fast food, large organizations. Um, and again, they're the minority of this industry. So when you start to sort of put the pieces together, um, it was very clear that we had to come together and that we could no longer stay silent and we had to really become um, a very powerful force, which we have in really a matter of weeks. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. And, um, you know, I think our, we've got a long road ahead of us, but, you know, I think the IRC is certainly here to stay. I mean, you've gone nationwide, but how many restaurants have joined up? We're across the entire country. Um, and, you know, it's, it's less about, you know, so many people ask that it's less about joining up. It's every single independent restaurant across the country is facing the same thing. And right. we are trying to give a voice to those who wouldn't otherwise um, and can't, you know, so many people right now are fighting for their lives, for their businesses, for their people. You know, they may not be able to join the many calls that we do a week, um, but they are liaising with a person who can. So well, it's, uh, the network's deep. I think what's interesting about what the what you're doing with the IRC is that you are like you do these phone calls, you send out a lot of I'm on your list. So I get all the information, which is amazing. Like you're so in touch with people and you're trying to, OK, what are your needs? What is, what is everybody focused on? So right now, because I know it changes every day, but right now, what are your top priorities for the IRC and how are you trying? Because especially with these slow opens happening across the country, I mean, it's. So there's, there's two main things that we are laser focused on. And I think, you know, one of our big um, promises to one another when we started was, you know, we do really have to be laser focused to be effective, especially because we're such a new organization, you know, dealing with a lot of very complicated and large problems, obviously, um, you know, you have to really focus one step at a time. So the two steps right now are one, trying to get the PPP fixed so that it's usable at least for some portion of our industry. It certainly will not be the majority or all. The you know, thing, at the time it was written, it was written so poorly. It's so well, look, I think at its core, it's an eight week solution to an 18 month problem. And yeah. it was not industry specific. It was never created for restaurants. No. So you know, the truth is it's a, it's a round peg in a square hole. Right. And, and that's just the reality. So one is some changes to the PPP so that it's really not for not in our industry. Um, but it's not nearly, you know, a portion of the way of the bridge that we need, you know, we are dealing with a very, very suppressed, um, business 
complication, right? You know, social distancing is going to require major capacity restraints on top of, you know, a full shutdown. What I try to explain to people is it's actually illegal to work from home in our business. It's illegal to cook food at home and sell it commercially. So there's no such thing as a work from home program. Um, And we're facing rising costs, which is going to be necessary for PPE and protective measures. So I keep saying, you know, think about if I took 50% of your income right now, but I told you your kids had to stay in the same school. All of your living expenses had to remain the same. You couldn't move. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't adjust anything in your life. Oh, and by the way, now you have to pay for a gate to be installed on your home. You know, it's, how is that possible? I don't know any other industry um, that could could do that without assistance. So number two, the most important and the more important is how do we actually finish the bridge um, that PPP is unable to do? And that is an industry-specific um, stabilization fund. So we are asking and calling on Congress for a $120 billion, um, $120 billion grant to get restaurants stabilized. I mean, like I said, think about that gaping hole even as an individual and now multiply it. We are the amongst the largest private employer in the country, 11 million people employed by independent restaurants. And that's just us directly. That's not representative of our supply chain, which starts to go up towards 15, 16 million. I mean, it's huge. And we are most economically harmed by this pandemic. And we have the least access to capital. So we are the perfect storm, um, perfect storm being hit, unfortunately, by this pandemic. And I think it's time that the public and Congress realize you know, we might be a collection of small businesses in their eyes, which is why we keep getting lumped in with other industries. But as a collective, we are anything but a small business. We are large. Well, you're um, the number one employers in the country, right? Like if you look at the explosion of restaurants nationally that have opened um, and how real estate people are trying to fill their slots with restaurants. I mean, there's, there's a whole thing at play. I mean, it was the house of cards built anyway. And now, you know, it's, it's shown its true self. Well, well, there's a bigger issue, too, because, yes, it's one employment, but two, it's also we as a country have to recognize what kind of employment. We are the driver for social mobility. We are one of the last frontiers for a job that is true entry level and that has long-term career prospects. Mm-hmm. There's just not many industries that have those dynamics. So it's not only jobs, it's really powerful, you know, important um, inclusive jobs that we should be taking as the highest value, particularly because they're not going to be reabsorbed by other industries. If this industry is not saved while there's still time, those people are not going to other businesses, certainly not in an economic recession. So my personal fear, um, and I think what we're trying to stave off is the the tipping point between a recession and a depression. And that, that rests on mass unemployment. One in four people unemployed right now come from the restaurant business. Insane. Okay, well, so what's the top priority? How can people support you with what's your top priority right now? And like, how can the layperson, the restaurant lover help you? So there's two things. I mean, this is just the time. I know it's so frustrating and I understand when people hear us say, call your representatives. But the truth is, this is an election year. If there was ever a time to say to yourself, you know what, I as a citizen, I might think I don't matter. But that's exactly what happens is each person thinks they don't matter and then no one speaks up. If you committed 10 to 10 minutes of your day, every single day, and you called every one of your Congress people and supported the IRC's proposal for a restaurant stabilization fund, it was just introduced as a white paper um, by Blumenauer, call your representatives at all levels. We have not received an industry-specific restructuring plan. 
just to give a sense of scope. So I will also say whoisyourrepresentative.com is a great resource for all that contact information if you don't know who yours are. That is a great um, resource. There's, there's just no excuses. This is, I keep saying to everyone, don't do nothing. That's really the answer. And the calls and the public pressure and writing to your representatives, posting on social media, you know, we see in this country, as much as we believe that an individual voice doesn't matter, it actually does. That's the premise of democracy. And again, like I said, particularly this year in an election year, it's more important than ever. And I think for people to realize, you know, we in New York, restaurants employ more here in New York state than airlines do nationwide. And airlines said that they couldn't handle even one month of 50% capacity when this all started and they received a bailout package in the original Third Cares Act. Right, well, they have lobbyists, so, yeah. Well, listen. Well, and there's a precedent there because they've been assisted by the government <laughs> before. So, you right. know, this is, this is a big hill we have to climb to establish precedents that we too, um, you know, again, by scale, we dwarf other industries that have received um, aid before from the, no, so from the federal government. We have to wrap you up. I'm so oh, sorry. Sure. Thank you forever. Right. But we do have to wrap you up. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is doing incredible work. Check them follow out. Us on, follow us on Instagram. Sign up for our newsletter. There are calls to action, you know, regularly. If you're not sure what to do, that's a great place to start. Great. Thank you so much. This is David. Thank and you. Good luck. Foodie and the Beast. When we come back, we're going to talk about Nick Farrell's cocktails. All right, we are back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and we've got good news. Uh, closer to home, Neighborhood Restaurant Group is forging ahead with plans to open the roost on Capitol Hill. We've got NRG Spirits Manager and Mixologist Extraordinaire, Nick Farrell, with us again. How many times have you been on the show? A bunch. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. three, actually. You're an all-star, man. This is the, this, yeah, this is uh, lucky number four. All right. Well, in advance of the roost opening up, Nick is up and running on his own selling pre-batch cocktails to go, which actually is something you couldn't do before COVID. So uh, it opened up a, a, an interesting revenue stream. So how are you, Nick? <laughs> uh, I'm doing well. I, I'm staying I'm staying very busy, uh, which is um, which seems to be a luxury right now for, for a yeah, lot of is. people. So, so so I'm happy about that. I'm happy to be able to fill my day. So let's talk about like when, so you're with, you know, Neighborhood Restaurant Group and, um, you know, they launched NRG Provisions, like, you know, the Roost was opening and Show of Hands, you know, was all slated to open. How did you Do sort of- Do people know what Show of Hands and the Roost are? We're going to tell them. Let's tell them. So let's, um, so let's talk about like how you decided, like as the laws changed and alcohol was, you know, available for sale in a different capacity, how did you go about deciding what you were going to do? Sure. Well, um, before before the laws even changed on alcohol, um, I had uh, we had communicated internally because um, and, and as restaurants were really slowing down at, at, um, during that week, like right before everything shut down, um, it, it, it was clear like we needed to find new ways to reach people. Um, and there were things people were still going to want that they weren't going to be able to get um, with a restaurant experience um so so for for me immediately that meant um non-alcoholic mixers um which is what we started out with um and the tie-in there with show of hands i wanted to be able to um have recipes with that that uh, are non-alcoholic low abv and then fully alcoholic so 
Uh, we launched that um, uh, before we could even do cocktails. Um, and uh, that was, um, it, with, with show of hands, the idea was to open uh, a low ABV cocktail bar. Obviously, we'd be, you'd be able to get, you know, full alcohol cocktails and everything else with that. Say, um, Nick, like before the pandemic, um, every, you know, low ABV was very, very popular. And I know show of hands is going to showcase right. that. Like people be drinking a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and do you think they're going to want the low ABV or they're going to be like, yeah, we'll order that, but put the full, full in there. So w w we're seeing, we're seeing incredible interest in both. Um, the, uh, I, I I thought um, somewhat somewhat cynically, I guess, that when we launched the cocktails, all the full alcoholic cocktails were going to sell amazingly, and then we wouldn't sell enough mixers um, to keep going. But even even with all the cocktails available, uh, people have kept buying the mixers, and they're still some of our best sellers. So we're actually doing really well with non-alcoholic. Uh, not to say we aren't doing well with alcohol because uh, people are certainly buying a lot of drinks right now. So, so when you're coming up with uh, batching cocktails, how like how do you go about coming out with ones that all will hold? And then what are you packaging them in to get them to people? So we're packaging them in glass bottles, uh, and everything is pre-diluted. And this is something. And this is something I wanted to do with show of hands was. In, in, in DC, um, the, the ABV is on every bottle. That's not something we have to do, but that's something we chose to do. Um, and understanding, it, it, like making a drink right requires, you know, having proper dilution every single time so that the drink doesn't taste stronger or weaker or completely different uh, because you haven't made it right. So, so actually having pre-diluted pre cocktails in bottles that you can then put in the freezer um, uh, and, and each label gives a specified freezer time for it. So we've kept a, a little bit on the low end, uh, just because nobody wants bottles exploding in their freezer. Right. Um, even though with the alcohol, they just usually turn to slush, but, um, it, it, if you forget about them. So, um, I, I can speak from experience. I've left them, I've left a couple in my freezer for a couple of days and I'm like, oh, I don't have to clean up a mess. Um, so. <laughs> So how many cocktails would you say you're you're making a, a week? Like how many different kinds of cocktails? I am buying a thousand bottles a week right now. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Are, and they, what's the are they just lined up outside? <laughs> I mean like <laughs> Well and where like what's what's the biggest sell like what are some of the cocktails you're making that are the biggies. Are the biggies. Like, yeah. Um, surprisingly, the, the Hurricane has sold really well. Um, the Pineapple Chartreuse Ricky and the Margarita. Um, people people are really wait, wait, digging their margaritas right now. Yeah. So, um, so I actually made my own chartreuse for it. Um, and it's just uh, a, a low ABV chartreuse, uh, fresh pineapple juice and lime juice. Top it off with a little club soda. Uh, super like refreshing, spicy, tropical, and also low ABV. Oh wow! And so now with show of hands, like how are you preparing during a pandemic to open up a cocktail bar? Um, trying out things for people and seeing what works. Um, what so uh, one of the things, yeah, <laughs> it's been working pretty well. Um, <laughs> But uh, the, the big thing is actually like date nights. Um, we're, uh, one of our chefs uh, in the group does, does a date night every single week. 
And we're, those, we're those have been. We're doing next week. So we're doing Jared Silver's next week. Oh, cool. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Jared's food is amazing. Um, uh, so, so within the roost, we're going to have, um, uh, different, um, uh, different purveyors, uh, selling all different types of food. Um, and one of the things that I've been wanting to do with show of hands is, is tie the cocktails into, uh, what, what each location is doing with food. Um, so the weekly date nights are a great opportunity, um, for me to, uh, to, to test out cocktail and food pairings, uh, with different chefs, uh, within the group each week. Um, and that's, the, that's very much thematically with, um, uh, with one of the things show of hands will be doing. Um, I, I, I want to take you guys away from, from the drink talk and talk broader, more broadly about the roost and show of hands, because I'm not sure everybody out there knows much about the roost because it's not open yet. Um, and yeah. yeah. And where it is. Yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, 1401 Pennsylvania Southeast. So like just east of Eastern market, um, uh, in a, in a new building that's been built. Um, it's, um, kind of like a, uh, it, it, it's encompassing the whole first floor. There's going to be, uh, a beer garden there, uh, a coffee shop, um, show of hands, obviously. Um, and then uh, a few different, uh, food concepts, including, uh, a red sauce Italian place. Um, and it, it, uh, I, I think we're saying it's, it's a little bit, a little bit like a culinary clubhouse. So it's kind of a, a, a one-stop shop to try a bunch of different things, um, and, and hang out and have a good time. All right, Nick, tell everybody where they can get your cocktails. Sure. Uh, everybody can get the cocktails uh, on uh, energyprovisions.com, uh, whether you live in Virginia uh, or in D.C. Um, the, uh, the, the cocktails are a little bit different in Virginia um, just because uh, we, we have to do it that way. But yeah, um, energyprovisions.com. Great. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to hear what happens with Show of Hands. And we want to thank everybody for joining us today on Foodie and the Beast. So much is going on out there. Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry is doing incredible work. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is working hard to make sure the independent restaurants are getting what they need from the government and you can get on there and support them. Don't forget also, uh, we had um, Sean Townsend from the mayor's office on talking about phase one. Check out his links. It's important because you need to know how you need to behave when you go to a restaurant. I just want to say there's a lot of turmoil out there in the world and uh, we should all treat each other with love. And it doesn't matter if it's a Fox News crew or a CNN news crew, treat them with respect. Thank you for joining us today, Foodie and the Bees at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S. Stay informed, wear a mask, be safe.